Good morning, my name's Ross, if we hadn't met. Uh, that was one of the more scarier Bible readings when you talk about Jesus' second coming and there's a rumble in the building. I'm assuming that was a plane flying over, but it was kind of like, ooh, anybody else hear that? Uh, this is one of the more interesting chapters of not just Mark, but the whole of Bible when Jesus is talking about the future times. Uh, many people have lots of different ideas on it. Um, I've really enjoyed this week and been able to spend a lot of time just thinking about what does this mean, and I think it's... Uh, Although it's scary at first, it's a real message of comfort. So I pray that, um, yeah, as we sit here this morning, we'll be able to understand it better. And I'm going to pray that God will guide us in our thoughts and our wisdom thinking through this. Please pray with me as we, before we start. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, just not leaving us in the dark about how you work and who you are and who we are and how we should respond to you. Thank you for Jesus' words in this chapter that's recorded for us. And we pray that you'd help us to understand it to have certainty in you, and to know that it, it, when it comes to the future, we're safe in your hands. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In, uh, shortly, Christmas is coming up, and it's an exciting time. I'm getting more excited about Christmas the closer it gets. Uh, we hear the band starting to practice their rehearsal for the carols. Uh, shops are getting to the mood. And just the whole way, the kids all know the story about Mary and Joseph and the star and the wise men. And it's Jesus' first coming to earth. And we like to celebrate that. Every year we do presents, we eat lots of food. And Jesus' first coming is a thing we find great joy in. God coming to earth as a baby, as like us, born into humanity. We find great comfort in that. And it's good news. We celebrate it every year and it's a warm, fuzzy feeling when we reflect on it. But we don't talk about Jesus' second coming very much. Did you notice that? Uh, when we talk about Jesus' second coming, there's all sorts of stirs different emotions. Because when we think of Jesus' second coming, or when somebody raises it, you're at a party and somebody says, so what do you reckon about Jesus' second coming? There's a few different categories that people fall into. We sort of go, there's those people are fanatics. They usually bring up the topic and go, oh, yeah, did you see this prophecy, the end times, and it's all happening here? Did you know this or this? You know, oh, that, that's pretty full on. Or we go to the other extreme and go, well, is it more of a fairy tale that it's a made-up story that, uh, you know, that gets around in Christian traditions that Jesus is going to come, but is it really going to happen? It's 2,000 years, nothing's happened. Is it just a story? Is there any truth to it at all? Is just the earth going to play out its course? Or are we, when we hear these stories, we might feel scared because there's lots of stories that are getting around Jesus' second coming, a time of tribulation, a time of torture and punishment and persecution on Christians that actually strikes fear in us when we think of Jesus' second coming. Or there's another position that we just go, well, I know if I'm safe in Jesus, it'll all pan out and I'll be okay. I'm just going to focus on my day-to-day -day life and just not really worry about it too much because whatever happens, happens and it's out of my control. I've got to confess, I'm the last category. I'm like, yeah, you know, it'll, it'll happen. I trust in Jesus. It'll be okay. But it, what Jesus is going to share with us this morning or what Mark records Jesus' words to his disciples that certainly apply for us today uh, all those positions kind of capture some, some sort of truth, but they're all sort of wrong as well. There's a lot of application for us today. How are we meant to live in this time when Jesus come the first time as a baby, the stars, the you know, things like that, to Jesus' second coming? We're in this window, this period of history. How are we to live while we wait for his second coming? Should we be alarmed? Is there going to be torture and punishment for Christians that we're afraid of? Or should we just not worry about it at all, just get on with life? 
Treat it like it's not even there. There's lots of application in this passage today. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to cover a few questions at the end, but it's going to give us lots to think about. Because what happens... uh, We we land in this story in Mark where Jesus is going along with his disciples and they've just been to the temple. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus with his disciples. He's gone to the temple. There's been a bit of kerfuffle there. They're just leaving the temple. And this temple, um, it's in Jerusalem, massive building, massive area of commerce, massive... It's just a hive of activity, this whole area. And what happens in this time is... If you think, if you kind of know your Bible history, you've got Solomon builds this big temple at the start, but it gets destroyed through different uh, wars and um, gets overtaken by different times. This is Herod's temple. Herod was a Roman, and he was like the Roman king of Judea, this area. And he had um, a foot in each camp. He, was, he wanted to be enough Jewishness in him, so he wants to build the temple. He wants a big and grand and impressive to make a statement because he wants the security. What if this Roman religion is? Uh, what if this Jewish religion is real? I want to. I want to make sure I've got a foot in that camp. But I'm also Roman, and as Romans, we're focused on order. We're focused on business and commerce. So he's turned the temple into a place of commerce. You can kind of imagine it today. Is you go into some of those really nice shopping centres. You know, their story's high. You stand at the bottom and you look up the stairwells and they go on forever. There's lots of nice trimmings. This is what the temple is turning out to be. This is a project that's taken over 50 years. It's building, building, building. It's an ongoing project. It's not finished at this time. But we know at this time, the foundation's there, the walls are up. It's recorded by historians, like um, not just historians, archaeologists now, doing diggings around Rome, uh, around Jerusalem, they see that um, some of the stones that Herod put into place are over 15 tonnes. They're massive stones, all sharp, really squared off. They know they're Herod's stones because Herod, on all his stones had his emblem stamped into each of the stone. So yeah, it's not just about impressing God, it's about look at how good I am too. But you can see they're his stones and how impressive they were. So it's not a surprise that the disciples walking out say to Jesus, man, this place is impressive, isn't it? Look at the size of the stones. The workmanship, it's so impressive. But Jesus turns around in verse 2 and says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on one another. It's like, how could this be? You've got this not only great temple that rises from the ground, but the great walls, the walls around the city, like this is impenetrable. This is amazing, this place. But Jesus says it's no two stones are going to be left one on top of the other. What is going on here? There's some big questions to be asked, isn't it? If Jesus is going to come out with a statement like that, what does he mean? So a few of his disciples pull him aside and they're in the Mount of Olives. So this is on a hill overlooking a valley to Jerusalem. The temple's in the background uh, with, the, with the big walls, the courtyards and everything. And they're going, Jesus, what do you mean? But have a close look at the question because they say, tell us when these things... Uh, tell, uh, sorry, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they, will be all, that they are all about to be fulfilled? There's some interesting parts of this question, isn't there? It's not just the temple's going to fall over. It's going to go like, 
when will this happen? But they're saying, when will these things happen? And not just what will be the sign that this is about to be fulfilled, but these are all about to be fulfilled. It's almost like they've got something more in mind than just the temple falling over because the, the, the way they've worded the question, they're using these, this phrase, all things. When are all these things happen? Now, it could be, uh, there's a phrase in Daniel's, an Old Testament book. Uh, he's one of the kind of prophets that lived. Uh, he prophesied and he uses this phrase, all things. Are they picking up on that? Not sure yet. What are they actually asking? I think it's, we can definitely say it's more than just when will the temple fall down, but when will all these things fall down? But what exactly are they asking? I think Jesus in his answer is going to share a little bit of information into that. So the first part of the answer is not actually talking about He's not addressing the, the when and how of the temple just yet, but he uses these next few verses. He quotes a whole lot of Old Testament uh, verses from the Old Testament prophets. So you've got to think, Old Testament prophets, almost always their message was repent because you know, God's coming, judgment is near, so get on God's side. So they're always looking to the future. God's going to come and judge, so repent, turn to him. But Jesus uses all these phrases. So he says to them, watch out, that's a phrase we're going to hear a lot of, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and, I, and will, deliver, uh, will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. So, so far he's used lots of these little snippets of Old Testament prophecy, because in the last days, in the end times, what people are waiting for is God to come to save them. So people are going to come and say look I'm he I'm God come and follow me he says no 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 don't be deceived and then he uses this uh, reference to wars another old testament uh, thing talking about the last days but he says such things must happen but the end is still to come they haven't even mentioned the end but they've obviously got it in mind because Jesus is saying something's going to happen but it's not that the end he goes on with some more Old Testament verses. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be earthquakes and um, earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings, like a little commentary again, these are the beginnings of birth pains. Birth pains, another Old Testament. It's all this Old Testament language. Now what we find, what is he talking about? What does he mean by this, using all this Old Testament language, bringing it in, but he's saying it's not the end, it's just the beginning of these birth pains. What we find if we follow what is he quoting, it's nearly always the Old Testament prophets are talking about a time where uh, they refer it to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, so repent, get yourself right with God. This day of the Lord kind of comes in three parts. God is going to come, God is going to pour out his judgment on sin. God hates sin. He's going to pour out his wrath. Uh, sometimes the, pro the prophets are talking about onto other nations. Sometimes they're talking about God's going to pour out his wrath on Israel themselves because they've come, become so corrupt. Sometimes he talks about pouring out his wrath on the temple because the temple's going to become so corrupt. But first stage, God's going to come. Second stage, God's going to pour out his wrath. And the third stage is God's going to save his people. Those people who truly trust in him, he's going to save them and bring them into a new kingdom. So therefore, the world is not going to be the same. So they call this the last days. This is the end of human history. It's leading up, it's pointing to something, but there will be a time God's going to come. He's going to judge. And from him, that's the end of 
history as we know it, there'll be a new creation with a new kingdom that God's going to take his people. Let me give you a little example of how this plays out. It's worth doing a bit of groundwork. It's going to help us a little bit later and uh, how this plays out. Um, let's go to... Uh, it's in Isaiah, Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, in chapter 13, I'm just picking up a few verses from verse 6, where he says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. I will come and... Dis- I will, I will come like a destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Feel how bad this day is when God's going to come pour out his judgment. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labour. That, that reference seems to keep coming up. Like this women in childbirth. Ten times it comes up about this day of the Lord. Then they will... Uh, they will look aghast at one another, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. It will, it, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins." So see, God's going to come into the world. He's going to judge the world. In a sense, purify it of evil. He's going to judge the wicked, judge man's sin at that time. But then there's this saving message. He's going to come and save his people. Pick it up in the next chapter, chapter 14. Uh, in Isaiah, just picking up a few verses. It's a long chapter. It says in verse 1, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Jacob's like a nickname for his people in Israel. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. In verse 3, On the day the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage. This is going to be so much better than what you just experienced. Verse 7, All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Imagine that, a time where there's complete harmony over the world. And at the end of the chapter, verse 32, the Lord has established Zion like his place. And in her, his afflicted people will find refuge. There'll be a home for them. So you get to this stage. God's going to come. He's going to judge. He's going to pour out his wrath on people, on whatever nation, or even if it's Israel itself. Uh, But there will be a time of bringing the new kingdom, a time of peace. That's for them. But it's in the context of Final judgment, final days. God's going to deal with sin once and for all. So when we just go back to the questions, what are they asking? It kind of, it fits. Where we go, uh, what, uh, watch out, the end is still to come. He's saying that we're talking about this time of great judgment, but it's not the end, Jesus said. It's the beginning of birth pains. Bring up that imagery. The disciples asking, When will these things happen? These things, could they be talking about uh, this day of the Lord? And when are they all about to be fulfilled? Uh, Many people do think they're talking about the day of the Lord, this time of great judgment. But how's it going to play out? How's it going to play out? Because now we sort of know what the question is. It's more than just a temple falling down. It's this day where God's going to come. Jesus calls this day, days of unequaled distress. This day is going to be bad. When God comes, particularly he's going to be talking about Jerusalem and the temple, it's going to be bad. So he says, picking up from verse 9, 
You must be on your guard. Again, this watch language. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Note here, he's not talking about like the Romans coming in, the Imperials coming in. He's talking about the religious guys, the Jews. They're going to be after you. He says, it's going to be after you on account of me. You'll stand before governors and kings, but also the Romans you'll be before. As a witness to them, he says. And the gospel must be first preached to all nations. He says, you're going to be arrested because people hate me. And if you believe in me, they're going to hate you too. But when you get pulled in front of them, witness about me. Tell them about me. Now, he is talking here about Jerusalem. Okay, in these times. Don't, don't be thinking his second coming yet. He's going to get to that. But he's talking to the disciples. This is what's going to happen for you. Pulled out in front of those guys and Romans. Verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you that are speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Just going to look, bad things are going to happen, but I'm with you in this. It's all about testifying, pointing people to Jesus. He goes on to then paint how bad this is going to be from verse 12. Sorry, verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death. And again, he's picking up Old Testament passages. This one's from Micah 7. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. In here, Micah, another Old Testament prophet, is talking about how corrupt the world has become. And when the world's that corrupt, you're crying out. You're crying out for, judge, for God to come and judge the world. You know, we kind of think judgment, that's a bit harsh. Can we do without the judgment? But no, no, the world is so corrupt. This time, you're crying out for that, for that to happen. Uh, then he goes on in verse 13. Everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So even though everything looks bad, there's still this message of saving. See through to the end. I'm with you. It's all right. It's under God knows what's going on. Then we get to this verse 14. And he says, you wanted a sign? Well, here's a sign. Here's some things to look out for. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, like a wink, wink, nod, nod. You know what I'm talking about. Then let those who are in Judea that area around Jerusalem, flee to the mountains. Just let me remind you, he's not talking about the second coming yet. He's talking about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. But he uses this phrase, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. What is that about? Should we be scared of that? Now, again, if we go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel gets a message from God, and God's sort of explaining what this day of the Lord is like. And he uses this phrase, the abomination that causes desolation. And what he's talking about is there's something going on at the temple that is so bad that God is just utterly disgusted in it. It's abomination, abomination to God that, uh, that this is happening. How it's going to happen, because sometimes it's a, it's a, you know, is it a person or is it a thing? Uh, they're not really sure in Daniel's time. Is it kind of in the disciples' time? Is it the Romans going to come? Is it Herod and his commercialism that's, that's taken over the temple? Is it, could it even be the Jews themselves? Because every time G Jesus goes to the temple, he's upset with the Jews that they're doing the wrong thing in the temple too. Uh, we're not sure yet. It'll get explained a little bit later. But at this stage, there's going to be something so terrible happen in the temple that... That in itself is not going to destroy everything, but God is going to be so upset at what happens in the temple that God is going to come down and cause desolation. God is going to cause, bring down his judgment and destroy that temple. 
So when you see this happening, something bad happening in the temple, it's going to lead to desolation when God comes and judges it. Uh, So this abomination standing where it doesn't belong, let the reader understand this is the day of the Lord type language. Let those who are in Judea flee for the mountains. Don't hang around. Don't stand around and get uh, worry about testifying. That time has passed. When you see this happening, just go. Just go. Uh, and that's what he goes on to say uh, from verse 15. Yeah. Uh, and it's a hard, harsh warning. Let no one, from verse 15, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. It's like this day when God's going to come down and destroy the temple, you just don't want to be there. Saying, just flee. When you see trouble, just get out of there. God's judgment is going to be poured out on them. This day is going to be so bad. And he goes on in verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them, shortened the days. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah... Or look, here he is, do not believe it. Remember that was the one of the signs at the end. It's all right, he's coming and he's going to save us. He says, no, I'm not coming then. Don't believe it, he says. And verse 22, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. That word again, be on your guard. And, be, and I have told you everything ahead of time. So it's like... This is the day of the Lord language. It's the day of the Lord's coming. There's something that's going to happen at the temple. It's going to be so bad. God's wrath is going to be poured out. You just don't want to be there. If you're trusting me, and I've told you ahead of time, don't be there at that time. But it's almost like God's God is elect. God is in control. It's not God is out of control. But this is not the end time. This is the day of the Lord coming to bring judgment, but it's not the time when he's going to take his people Uh, and save them and bring them into the new kingdom it's not yet so it's it's nice way to understand this this chapter up to now he's just been talking about what's going to happen in jerusalem and the temple but now there's a change because now he talks about the days following that distress moved on to the next story and he quotes uh he says but in those days following that distress so sometime later And then he quotes some verses you might recall that we read from Isaiah. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So again, we should be thinking, oh, that's Isaiah 13. This is the day of the Lord that he was talking about. It's it's still coming. Then he says in verse 26, at that time, people will see the Son of Man in clouds with great power and glory see this time you will see the messiah coming the other one people were pretenders they are fakes but this time the day of the lord when it comes you will see uh jesus uh his nickname's kind of like the son of man describing who he is he's going to come in clouds and is this an idea of philosophy or a fairy tale but he's going no no this you will see it physically you will see jesus return 
in clouds. Now, this is an interesting statement because sometimes we see, particularly if we're down Kurong and we see the nice posters of Jesus' return, he's sitting on the clouds and we go, yeah, oh, yeah, that's what it means when he's coming. But he specifically says, in clouds. This is because throughout the Old Testament, whenever God turned up, he's in a cloud. So when uh, the Israelites were going through the desert, they were guided by the cloud. And when they built the tabernacle, the cloud uh, was over it. When Moses went up to the mountain to do the whole Ten Commandments thing, God spoke to him in a cloud on the top of the mountain. In the temple, when they built the temple, they knew God's dwelling place was in the temple because the cloud come into the temple. Uh, we even have, uh, just a few weeks back, there was a passage in Mark that we had. Uh, it was a place called the Transfiguration where Jesus took a few of his disciples up on the mountain and God spoke. It was The cloud was on top of the mountain, God spoke. So whenever we see this cloud... And it usually says, almost always, that God is there in glory, like his righteousness and perfection is associated with the cloud. So when we see this, it's not just a random cloud or some sort of figure. This is God. Be clear. When you see this, this coming, it's Jesus himself in a cloud affirming it is God with power and glory. Now, every other time where it's mentioned uh, this cloud in the Old Testament, it talks about we see God in his glory like his righteousness, his perfection. But this time it's glory in one hand, but power in the other hand, But because this, this time it's different. This time God is coming in the cloud in, through Jesus, but in power, referring to his judgment, he's going to come. He is going to pour out his wrath on the world for their sin and rebellion. He's bringing judgment, but also in his glory, in righteousness, he's going to come to save so this whole day of the Lord thing is going to come together. It's another passage from Daniel that Daniel was seeing this in the future. But he's saying, when you see this, this is the end of history. This is the day when Jesus is going to come to judge, but he's going to gather his people. He's going to save his people for the new kingdom. He's going to gather them from all the corners of the earth to, to save them. This is, uh, this is the last day that he's talking about. But when is this going to happen? When is... Jesus' second coming. When is the completion coming? Sorry, I missed having that up on the screen. When is this coming uh, from verse 28? Where it says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. He's talking about seasons. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know it is near right at the door. There is a season where these things, these, this coming of the Lord, this, uh, the Lord's day, is going to happen. And then he says, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, Sorry, I need my glasses, don't I? That's bad. He says in verse 30, verse 30 is up there, isn't it? Great, thank you. We need to talk about verse... I'd love to miss verse 30, to be honest. Verse 30 is there. Because he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, this day of the Lord, when Jesus return, if we read in that context, what? They're all going to see it. In their generation... They're expecting to see it. That's the way it kind of reads. This is a big question, so big, I think we need to answer that question a little bit later. Let's see the, all the context, and then we're going to come back to what, what they're expecting to see in that generation. 
And we continue on reading in verse 32. We're still talking about when. When is this going to happen? But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, of, nor the Son but only the Father. Be on your guard. Again, he says, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. And then he goes on to tell a story. In verse 34, it's like a man going away. He talks about this man being Jesus and his servants being us, his followers. The man is going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, us, each with, his, with their assigned task and tells each one uh, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Again, that stress, keep watch. So verse 35, therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. It finishes this bit. Verse 37. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. Because he's saying this is the season, this last day, everything that history has been pointing to, the Old Testament prophets have been pointing to, this day of the Lord, it is coming. This is the last days. This is the last hour. Keep watch because we don't know exactly when he's going to come back. This is the big show when Jesus is going to return. He's going to judge humanity for their wickedness, for their rejection of God, for their sin. He's going to pour out his wrath on the world. But he's going to also come to save those that he loves, those that he's chosen and bring them into the new kingdom. Now, that's... The, the, the way of understanding this passage in the context shows is we're talking about the day of the Lord. I just love if Mark actually used those words. Jesus is talking about the day of the Lord, right? But it fits. All the Old Testaments are pointing to it. Jesus is saying now it's going to come first on Jerusalem and then it's going to, you'll see the Son of Man coming on, all, on the rest of the world. Now, I have a few questions. Um, I'm sure we've got lots of questions. I'm sure your growth groups will be able to resolve all of them, right, during the week. Let's just hit a few in our time we've got now. Uh, how do we know this is true? It's 2,000 years later. We're still waiting for Jesus. Are we wasting our time? Second question, uh, what's going on in verse 30? We kind of need to get back to that one because um, that generation has definitely died. Uh, and a third one, how should we live while we wait? How should we live while we wait? Uh, is trying to unpack how do we to understand this. Now, first question, how can we trust that this is true? Now, it's interesting living in our time in history. We can see what's happened in Jerusalem to know what happened. There. That first part of what Jesus said was going to happen. What, what did actually happen? So then we know is the second part going to happen. Well, Jesus was crucified. I said Jesus died about 33 AD. I uh, kind of know that pretty accurately. But then Jerusalem still continued under Roman rule and how that played out. So about 63 AD. And now uh, people are getting, the Romans particularly kept pretty good records of what they were doing at that time. So we know through uh, historians and archaeological evidence, this, is, this stuff's pretty accurate or very accurate uh, from more than one source. A number of the Romans were keeping records of these events. So in, 65, uh, so in 63 AD, um, Nero was in charge. Nero was the emperor of Rome. 
Uh, he tolerated the Jews but hated Christians. So he went and pursued the Christians, hunted them out and questioned them. So did the Jews. The Jews saw the Christians as opposition. So there we see this time of Christians getting pulled in front of the, in the synagogues, being questioned and grilled and, and even put to death. And by the Romans, uh, sort of fulfilling some of Jesus' stuff through Nero, Christians were being hunted down. It was around that 63 to 65 uh, year the Christians just fled because of persecution. They got out of Jerusalem uh, because it was just too bad to wait. So in about 65 AD, the Jews started getting a bit jack of being under Roman rule. By about 65, Herod had nearly completed this task on the temple. The temple was just... Uh, amazing place and it was a place of commerce it was one of the the busiest places like you had if you wanted to go to uh, somewhere that that really wowed you Jerusalem was the place out of all the world it said that you had to go to you looked up um, one of the the Roman um, army leaders said when you stand at the bottom you look up at Jerusalem if it's in the morning you can't you can't see it. the glare is so strong because the temple is now lined with marble and gold so it was so bright up there. This was like, wow. But now the Jews have said, we've got everything. We don't need the Romans and we're jack of the Romans. So little parties, little war parties would go and start popping off the Romans, start killing them. Uh, Nero and Herod, Herod's still around then, so we can't ha handle this, sent in a few little armies to try and settle things down. Uh, but the resistance was so great amongst the Jews, they started seriously killing some of the smaller armies that the Romans were sending. So Nero's like, no, we're going to do, take this seriously. Uh, so in 65 AD, 67 AD, sorry, um, he sends in, uh, goes to send in a serious army. I'm going to wipe out Jerusalem. No more of this. In that same year, uh, so, sorry, 68 AD, so within this few years now, 68 AD, Nero sends his big army to wipe him out. Nero has a lot of other issues on his mind and he takes his own life. So there's no Nero. If there's no emperor in Rome, there's chaos. So now over the next, three or next two years, they go through all these different emperors. If you become an emperor in Rome that time, your lifespan is going to be shortened a lot. So you become emperor, you die. You become emperor, you die. By about the third new emperor. Uh, so now it's AD 70. So now Rome's settled. settled. We've got an emperor. And he says, I'm going to affirm, I'm going to stamp my authority and I'm going to deal with Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem at this time, I know this is getting complicated, but hang with me. Jerusalem at this time, Romans are gone. They're dealing out their sorting out their politics. So they let Jerusalem govern themselves. Herod had moved out for fear of his life. So Jerusalem had this three-year period or two-year period of we can do our thing. So what happened in that two-year period time were there three different parties of Jews, all struggling for power. There are three key leaders, but a historian that I read said rather than calling key leaders, they are three warlords because they wanted to, to gain control over Jerusalem. They, so they fought each other. There's a civil war in Jerusalem at that time. At that time, all the religious stuff seemed to be thrown out the window uh, they said the brothel set up. It's sort of when I was reading this stuff, it sort of reminded me of the Wild West in America. There's just no law amongst. Every man did it as, as he pleased within his own little tribe. There was um, uh, brothels set up. There was uh, ways of just killing people that were horrific. It was just terrible internally. At the temple side of things, there's a story around that time where some, some Greeks uh, who wanted to... to you know, sacrifice at the temple. They, they wanted to draw near to God. They want, they, the, the 
fees to go into the temple and to buy their animals had become so great that they couldn't go in. So they brought their own uh, little birds to sacrifice. They stood outside the wall of the temple and sacrificed their animals. Like, we're close enough. This will just have to do us. We're going to do it. This upset the Jews so much that people weren't coming in to pay their money that they banned any sacrifice. No more altar. No more sacrificing to God. We're so upset. I'm not sure how long that lasted for, but basically the temple was shut down for, for worshipping God. Still open for commerce, but not worshipping God. So you see the whole, the whole thing's disintegrating. So then this new army, 60,000 strong, because they just wanted to stamp their approval, we're not tolerating any of this stuff. 60,000 Roman soldiers. Now come in. This is an archaeological, this is carving on a wall of where the Romans were doing their parade. They'd plundered the temple, bringing out all the treasures of the temple, parading it in their hometown of Rome. But to get that, they had to uh, get into the temple and basically wipe out the forces of Jerusalem. So once they, there's three big walls they've got to go through, destroyed the walls, archaeological findings now around Jerusalem will find uh, massive foundations of walls, metres of cross, across, but there's not one wall left standing of the original walls, uh, just the foundations. They knocked all the walls down. They got into Jerusalem. Now what would happen is when they come around, th this war happened over three years the pinnacle in 70 AD. But what happened is they, they gathered, they cut off food supplies. So inside there's terrible stories. And again, we've got these records of um, the, the condition of the people were so bad after they'd eaten all their animals. They were eating animal poo, then the animal uh, grass, the, the, the hay that they were eating. They were desperate to eat anything. And there's stories about eating leather just to get something in their stomachs. So you get this massive thing of poverty and starvation. If people were fleeing out of the city, they were either killed on the spot or sold into slavery, because the Romans were making good money selling the slaves to Egypt, or crucified. So if you're a soldier, you either got killed on the battlefield or crucified. Records tell us that they were crucifying 500 people a day. And this went on for weeks, if not months. It got to the stage. This, this is Josephus, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, he was alive. He's a Roman historian. He's sitting on the Roman side, just recording all this stuff that's happening. He said the, the crosses were so great that they ran out of room uh, on the Mount of Olives and on the roads uh, to put up crosses. In fact, doing 500 a day, the stench was so bad and the wild dogs were so bad coming to eat uh, and there were so many of them that they run out of trees to make more crosses. Like, this is lots of people dying. Um, Josephus estimated there was about a million people living in Jerusalem. Another historian at the time was saying more, 600,000. We're talking a lot of people in Jerusalem. But they're surrounded, couldn't escape. Other, the more wealthy ones, trying to escape. Their stories of them... Um, you want to escape. If you're a wealthy person, you want to take your wealth with you. So they would swallow their gold coins, fill their stomachs, and remember they're starving as well, which either led to them dying. Uh, but in one case, apparently uh, somebody's stomach burst open because he'd swallowed so much gold and come out. When the Romans saw they had gold in his stomach, then the Roman soldiers wouldn't worry just about killing people like across the neck. Uh, they were just going straight for the stomachs to, to plunder their, their gold. It was that bad. People, if they're escaping, are killed on the spot, put on a cross or sold into slavery. Like, it was that bad. The story goes, when they go in, they come to the temple and because they're Romans and they like 
kind of anybody in a human way. Uh, you're plundering the place. This is the wealthiest place in the world at that time. So you want to get to the temple. You want to plunder the temple for gold. They got to the temple, knocked down the temple wall. There's 10,000 Jews inside the temple walls ready to, ready to fight. Uh, but they killed them all, 10,000. They said they threw the bodies out onto the steps of the temple walls where it goes down. And as they threw the bodies on the top of the, the pile, it was so great. The bodies just rolled down. There's a river of blood down the bottom. 10,000 died just in around that temple site. But then the Romans, in such a rush to get into the temple, to plunder the temple, it's recorded that some of the Roman soldiers died being trodden underfoot by the other Roman soldiers rushing in to plunder the temple. But as they plundered, they just torched everything, burnt everything, temples gone uh, just to ashes and dust. It is that bad. Now, if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem at that time, you see all the battles been going on around the temple. The Romans have got what they want. Do you just let them go? At that time, no. The Jews kept sending out their little angry men to start provoking the Roman soldiers and killing Roman soldiers. They still wanted to carry on fighting. So at that time, the commanders go, no, this is not good enough. Let's, let's just wipe out the rest of Jerusalem. So it's recorded by day. They went out with their swords and killed people. Anybody. This is like not soldiers now, men, women, children. Everybody's got to go. Swords by day, fire by night. They were torching the city as they went. There's a story about, sorry, this is really graphic, but it's, we need to feel what Jesus is talking about. This is the worst time in history uh, of creation that he's talking about. But also one of the historians talked about there was an area in Jerusalem that they thought was pretty safe where 6,000 women and children were kept in, a, in an area that only had a few entrances and exits. So they were hoping that would be a safe. When the Romans found them, they just torched the entries and exits and let the fire just burn in and consume everybody. All that's left after this battle, this went on for a few years, so 73 AD, all that's left is the Romans left one of Herod's towers to oversee, basically oversee the, the battle as it was Jerusalem was being wiped out. Everything was flattened. Nothing lived there afterwards. It was totally destroyed. Lots of records from historians and archaeologists now affirm they can see Herod's stones. Um, they're not around there. They've been scattered because there's been different rebuilding projects over Jerusalem. So you see Herod's stones all over Jerusalem now, not just at the temple. Uh, there was that one wall that was holding up the temple where the Jews go and, and pray to now. It's the only remaining bit of the bit of retaining wall that they're kind of praying to and think their connection with God was totally wiped out. Now, when we see this, <clears throat> if Jesus says, if you, there'll be a time where you'll be pulled, pulled in front of authorities, testify to me. And we hear of Nero and what the Jews did uh, in those uh, early days, pre-70. But then we see after 70, how bad it was that Jesus says, don't go back for your coat, don't come down to your house and get your stuff, just run. Just go, because God's judgment is going to pour out. And we can see it was bad. We don't want to be there. Now, this is just over 30 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. How did Jesus know that was going to be happening? How did Jesus know that, that was going to be bad? Unless he is God, and he really does know. So when he says, hey, this is going to be bad for Jerusalem, and we see it's really bad, and now it's going to be bad when the second coming comes, God's wrath's going to come down on the earth again. Are you going to trust him again? Like he was right the first time. Ah, oh, I don't know. It might not happen. Are you kidding? 
This happened so bad, just as Jesus said, you're going to have a good reason not to trust him. Because he's been right all along. He's been right all along to that point. So can we trust that this is true? I'm saying you need a good reason not to, because everything else Jesus is saying and doing is true. What about verse 30? What is going on here? Oops. Verse 30, where he says, This generation will certainly not pass away until all things happen. This is in the section where he's talking about the second coming, or uh, the section where, remember, the bigger context of the day of the Lord. So if we read it just in the second coming, because that's how you read the Bible, if you find a weird verse, what's going on in the verses around it? And you go, Oh, he's talking about the second coming, and they should expect it in their lifetime. But there's a bigger context going on here. Jesus is talking about this day of the Lord where God's going to come, pour out his judgment and save people. So even though it's a bit confusing where it's slotted in in the story, there is something that Mark wants us to see. And I say Mark because the way he's written this is, I think, quite clever. He throws this in here going, this day of the Lord is going to start with the destruction of Jerusalem. It's going to end with Jesus coming again. But then there's this other thing that's going to happen in your lifetime to the disciples. What we see in chapter 13, there's a whole lot of things mentioned, uh, a whole lot of stories, a whole lot of particular words used. But then we see in the next three chapters, chapter 14, where basically they're around the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus gets arrested. Chapter 15, Jesus on the cross. Chapter 16, Jesus resurrected. There's a whole lot of things that link up together. We'll go over this quickly. <clears throat> Uh, so chapter 13 verse 2 the temple will be thrown down Jesus says so chapter 13 stuff we should be familiar with then chapter 15 we're told the temple curtain is torn in two not that that's a big falling down of stones but the temple's not going to be needed anymore because of what Jesus is going to do on the cross curtain torn in two uh, verse 5 watch out that no one deceives you in 1438 watch out and don't fall into that temptation some key words there that are repeated um, brother will betray brother to death we heard in verse 12 but in 1443 Judas betrays Jesus to death Judas like a brother uh, in verse 14 at that time uh, be, people will flee to the mountains then everyone in 1450 everyone deserted him and fled they all fled when things got bad when Jesus got arrested chapter 16 don't go back and get your cloak. Now, this is random, but kind of weird. If it, in the next coming weeks, we'll hear this story. When Jesus is being arrested and going to be put on the cross, a young man flees, uh, leave, flees naked, leaving his garment behind. That is the most random verse, random detail you'll hear in the whole book of Mark. But it kind of, it's like, there's a connection here. Uh, verse 19, a time of unequal distress, where Jesus in 1443 goes, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. There's other references you could use, this unequal distress. Verse 24, the sun will be darkened. Uh, in 1533, when he's at the cross, darkness came over the whole land, we're told. There's this illusion of the day of the Lord. Uh, verse 32, no one's uh, going to know the day or hour, but in 1441, Jesus says the hour has come. In Verse 35, where he says, keep watch. And verse uh, 34, uh, 14, 34, he's telling his disciples, keep watch. Verse 35, 13, he says, don't fall asleep. And 14, 37, uh, he says, are you sleeping? Are you sleeping? And then in 35, 
we get this whole reference to the times coming. There'll be eve- will it be evening? Will it be midnight? Uh, even when the rooster crows or will it be at dawn? And then we get this 14, 17 uh, mark gives us all these time markers. It's evening, then it's midnight, then the rooster crows, and then it's dawn. Um, it's all this stuff of... It's like Mark's going, hey, you know, there's this stuff about Jerusalem. That's going to be the day of the Lord. But it's not going to be the end. God's judgment's going to pour out in Jerusalem. Uh, and this um, abomination that causes desolation seems to be the, what the Jews are doing themselves to the temple. It's not the Romans at all. It's what the Jews have done in the temple. But that's going to be destroyed and punished. But there's going to be this second coming where Jesus is going to come on the clouds and come and pour out his wrath but save his people. But there's this other thing that's going to happen in your own generation, within days actually of Jesus saying this, is he's going to come and he's going to go to the cross. And at that time, it is also the day of the Lord where God comes and pours out his punishment on humanity for their sin but where does this punishment go but jesus himself the son of man he's going to come his first coming he's coming to take the wrath of god that jesus would come and go on the cloud you know all god's wrath and we had it very clearly illustrated in the destruction of jerusalem it's going to be bad but for all god's wrath instead of pouring it out on sinners He pours it out on his son, Jesus, on the cross. Pours it out on Jesus. And it's through that, God coming, God putting his judgment on, and at the cross it's onto his son instead of us in humanity, pours his wrath on his son on the cross to then lead his people, to save his people from that punishment, to save them into the new kingdom. This is the way it's described uh, in Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think the day of the Lord. How can while we're sinners, we're facing God's wrath, God's judgment, but Jesus is going to die for us. And in verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, so he's taken our punishment, so we can have righteousness, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So when Jesus comes the second time to judge the world, he's coming in power. He's going to pour out his wrath upon upon all those people who have rebelled and not listened to God. Should we be fearful? The Apostle Paul, who writes Romans, says no. We're standing under the cross. Jesus has taken that judgment for us. So we can receive his glory, his righteousness, and be taken into the new kingdom. It's the cross is the key to all this. It's the cross that gives us security. It's the cross that is in God's plan all the time in history. All the Old Testament prophets are all pointing to some amazing big events in the future, but they're all pointing it through the cross. It's through the cross it all makes sense that God is doing this all. So it's through the cross. If that's so significant, how should we live? Back to that question. How should we live while waiting for this second coming should we be one of the kind of fanatics we're all obsessed with this last day reading you know, the stars falling down are the sun going the earthquakes when is the time well jesus is clearly saying we're in the season we're in the last days but no one knows the last day or hour don't be obsessed with that 
Or should we just think it's a fairy tale, that other extreme? No, no, this is real. I'm talking about real stuff. And Jesus is using a real tone, real sense of seriousness here. Or should we be uh, worried or scared about the persecution and the trouble that's going to come? I find it really interesting that when Jesus is talking about Jerusalem, he's going to say it's bad, you don't want to be there. But when he's talking about the second coming, he never mentions how bad it's going to be. He just says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come in power. I'm going to come in glory and you're going to be okay. So from that, I don't think we should be scared. In fact, if we go to this last category that I declared I was in this kind of apathetic kind of, yeah, it'll all pan out. It'll all be right. He's going, no, no, that's actually wrong. Actually, I might be the one that's asleep. Don't be asleep because he's saying, keep watch, be on guard, be be ready because it's the last days. Are we watching? Are we keeping an eye? We know that it's leading to this last day. We know all history is pointing to this time. Are we ready? Are we trusting Jesus? Are we clinging to him? Are we living for the new kingdom? Or are we trying to keep our gold and our silver to ourselves that's going to be destroyed and just living for other kingdoms? Are we living in light of Jesus' return? Don't be falling asleep. Don't be apathetic. But be ready, be watchful, be ready for any comes. Let me pray now. I'm sure you've got lots of questions. I'm hanging around for morning tea. Uh, you'll have opportunities in your growth groups as well. But oh, I find this a really exciting chapter. Let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your amazing love for us. And Lord, we confess to you when we think of these things, whether it's prophecy or looking into the future, we do find it confusing. And sometimes it's too hard and we just give up. But Lord, thank you for being really clear in this chapter that we can see historically what went on in Jerusalem but we can also know what is being uh, saved for us in the future. Lord, we long for the day when Jesus returns. We long for the day to see him coming to not only deal with the sin, to deal with injustice in the world, to save those people who are suffering. But Lord, we long for the day to cling to you, to cling to the cross and that we will be taken into glory with you. Well, give us those hearts that long for that day, to live for that day. Let us not be complacent. Let us not be obsessed. But let us not be asleep, Lord, and not not ready to go. So, Lord, please keep us uh, growing towards you, trusting you, and clinging to the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.